Father, we just bow before you. Lord, we're thankful for the rich blessings that you've given us, Lord, of having awesome moms and dads, people investing in our lives. And Father, some may not have had that, but Lord, you've given them a church family and you've surrounded them with some awesome Christian fathers who can be role models to them and mentors to them. Lord, I thank you for the leaders in our church who do a wonderful job at discipling and mentoring the other members and being spiritual fathers to them. Lord, we want to pause this morning really and say thank you for being a, a, a heavenly father. Everything that is good about a father, you are to us. Protective, loving, providing, caring, encouraging. Lord, thank you for loving us with an everlasting love beyond our wildest expectations. Thank you for being patient with us. Lord, thank you for being sovereign. And Lord, when we make mistakes, no, no mistake is final. Thank you for working with us and being patient and bringing us along. Lord, we just love you this morning. Lord, I pray for the, the church family, for our friends watching together right now. Lord, that you'd use Pastor David's words to encourage us this morning and bring us through maybe a hard spot we're going through. Help us uh, conquer some doubt in our lives. Lord, have more trust and faith in you at the end of the day. Lord, our strength would be in our relationship with you. And ultimately, that would dispel doubts because we know you're there and you've got us. Lord, I'm praying for those right now who've lost their jobs. Lord, in these days ahead, open a door of opportunity. Lord, provide that job. Lord, maybe you would even use one of our members as the catalyst for providing that job through their uh, place of employment. God, I pray that you would care for our families emotionally in a time of stress. Lord, uh, materially in a time of uncertainty. And Lord, uh, it's hard to trust in an economy or, you know, when you're fighting an unseen uh, virus. But God, we put our trust in you this morning. We know you're constant and consistent and your track record is impeccable for caring for your children. Father, bless us this morning. Bless those who are giving even now to the kingdom of God, Lord. I pray that you would open the windows of heaven and pour a blessing on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, we want to have uh, Pastor David come up and, uh, and continue our series on come ahead, this Pastor morning. David. Good morning. I'm also going to look right at the camera today, uh, I promise. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad to be with you guys today. It's always an honor and a privilege to come and speak uh, for the whole church family. Um, as they were talking about this morning, uh, while it is such a blessing we get to meet over this digital space, you just kind of miss something uh, what, about what our church family is about. And, and since Cornerstone kind of has that secret sauce, um, it's, it's hard to really define or describe what it is, but it, it is that family element. It's that family aspect. And we cannot wait, whether it's July 5th, the, the first time that we have planned or, or a later date, we cannot wait to be back with you guys. Um, last week, we were just showered with love from several members of our church. I uh, had the opportunity to, to meet with them, and, and we love you guys. We are so appreciative of y'all, and we cannot wait to be back together. We're in our third week now, I believe, of our Doubt series. Um, if you're new with us, you can go back into the uh, the Facebook feed and catch the other sermons that we've done so far on the series. It's a great series, and I would encourage you to look at those. Last week, Pastor talked about um, some stories of doubt where it directly deals with uh, moments in Jesus' life where he deals with particular people. Uh, 
and and I hope that as you listen to that sermon series or that sermon last week, that you found yourself maybe identifying with one or maybe all the characters that were in each of these stories, whether you're a natural pessimist like Thomas, who finds it hard to believe even in the face of evidence or, or the face of people telling you the truth, or if you're uh, someone who's devoted to Christ, you, you've, you've known him for a long time, kind of like John, but your circumstances are really heavy and the things that are, that are going on in your life are overwhelming. Maybe you have doubt like he did, or maybe you're like the father. Uh, I, I find this story so touching. The father who does believe and does believe that Jesus can, can heal and do wonderful things in his life, yet calls out to Jesus, Help me in my unbelief. I, I don't know where you are or if you saw yourself in any moments of those stories, but, but certainly the way that Jesus deals with doubt is not condemnation. It's not coming after the person. He doesn't ever freak out. Oh my gosh, you doubt that I'm the Messiah. Instead, he deals gently. He deals with a lot of grace and with mercy to those who have moments of doubt. Last week, Pastor was only able to kind of introduce each of these stories. And so I want to go further into John the Baptist story this morning. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 11, verses one through six, as we begin to look now in our third lesson on doubt. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, John's in prison because King Herod threw him in there. John was pretty vocal about something that King Herod had done, um, which was divorce his wife, marry his sister-in-law, start a little mini war. It's this whole crazy thing. And John was very vocal about the wrong thing that Herod had done, and it earned him a, a prison sentence. Uh, and so he's in prison. He's got an overwhelming circumstance in his life right now. And he's sending a question via his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one that we're looking for? Shall I look for another? I wonder, have you ever asked that same question? Have you ever thought to yourself, shall I look for another? Is this real? Is this really the person that matters? Is this relationship that we talk about all the time in church and in Christian circles, is it really that important? Now, I would venture to guess that you have seen in your own life God's protection and God's provision. And yet when we're facing overwhelming circumstances or difficult things that are going on in our lives, maybe that question rings true for you. Shall I look for another? Now, I don't want you to mishear what I'm saying this morning. As we read the stories, our primary goal is not to say the Bible is all about me. And so I'm going to insert myself into the story and everything that the Bible says is for me personally right now in the 21st century. That, that's not necessarily how we're supposed to read the Bible. In fact, one of the best Bible study tools is to read the Bible to understand and learn who God is. We want to know who God is so we can grow our relationship with him. But secondarily, there's a really important way to study the Bible and ask, how does this apply to me. So primarily, I want to learn about God. Primarily, I want to know about his sovereignty and his holiness. Absolutely. But secondarily, I want to see how this applies to my life. And I'm wondering, does that question ring true for you as you think about what John is asking? Are you really the Messiah that we're looking for? Should we look for another? I wonder if that rings true in your ears. Maybe you've asked a similar kind of question. Jesus, are you real? Do you hear me? What's going on in my life? Why is there so much pain in my newsfeed? Where are you? And I think that Jesus's answer is important for John, of course, but also for us today. Let's continue on in verse four. 
And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Leopards are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, if we remove Jesus from his first century context, if we remove Jesus from his Jewish roots, um, a a man who knew the Old Testament by heart, mind you, uh, if we remove him from, from that context, then we are prone to just read these words. And again, if I just insert myself into the story and this is all for me, then I'll miss the weight of what Jesus is trying to say here. Jesus isn't just giving a yes or no simple answer. Instead, what he's doing is he's using a rabbinic teaching tool where he alludes to the point of what he's trying to make by quoting scripture. He's quoting from Isaiah chapters 35 and 61 here, and he's doing this on purpose. He's he's giving a yes answer to John, but he's also adding layers of meaning. And unless we understand what Jesus is actually trying to say, we miss the weight of his answer back to John, because Jesus isn't just giving his track record of why he's the Messiah. John knew this. It's it's not as though John hadn't heard or seen Jesus do miraculous things. It was John who baptized Jesus and who saw the heavens open and and, and saw the the dove descend uh, like the Holy Spirit and and the voice of God ringing out saying, uh, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. It's not as though John didn't understand who Jesus was on a very deep level. It's not as though Jesus needs to give him his track record here. So instead, there must be something deeper that Jesus is trying to say. What he is saying here is, yes, I am the Messiah. He's calling John's attention back to these scripture references in Isaiah chapter 35 and 61, where it is about the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Messiah. I am launching the kingdom, but it's not going to look like you thought it would. It's going to be a little different. Now, John has the Old Testament memorized as well. John would have instantly recognized what Jesus was alluding towards. He would have understand the exact phrases that Jesus was using to lead John towards the answer. Now, what Jesus intentionally leaves out, John would have also caught. The end of the phrase that Jesus gives us is, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That is not what Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1 finishes with. Instead, it has something to do with setting the prisoners free. John would have been probably listening listening with bated breath to what his disciples were saying, especially because, oh, he's talking about Isaiah 61 right now. He's, he's, he's talking about setting the prisoners free. This is exactly what I was expecting him to be doing. But instead, Jesus doesn't finish with that phrase Instead, he finishes with something really odd and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. See, John would have understood what Jesus was saying by what Jesus didn't say. Jesus intentionally left that phrase out because he's telling John something particular for John. He's telling him, I am the one. I am the one that Isaiah was talking about. I am the Messiah that you were looking for. No, I'm not going to set you free from prison. It's not, it's not going to happen. It's not in the cards for you, John. I am the Messiah that you are expecting, but I won't always do what you expect. And and this is really interesting and really important for us to grasp this morning. And this is what kind of pastor's been talking about now. He said last week, disappointment can lead to doubt. Now, disappointment will produce questions. Why didn't it go this way? Why wasn't it this? Why didn't they, you know, get to this level or whatever? But see, those questions will only coincide with the expectations that happened beforehand, if that makes sense. 
This is why forming our expectations appropriately is so important. Um, this morning, if you thought it was going to be sunny outside because the weatherman told you that that's what it was supposed to be today, you may have woken up disappointed this morning because that expectation that you had set was not met. And again, this is why setting our expectations are, well, actually, this is why we doubt the weatherman, <laughs> because the disappointment then leads to the questions, which then lead to the doubt. Because again, if we don't set our expectations appropriately or at a healthy level, if we don't set our expectations on truth, then we find ourselves in trouble. We can find ourselves disappointed. We can find ourselves with questions. We can find ourselves ultimately with doubt. Instead, what we have to do is set our expectations on truth above our feelings and above our circumstances. See, if John had understood fully what the Messiah was supposed to be, if John had had the correct, the truthful expectations about the Messiah, even that Isaiah describes, the suffering servant, then he would not have been so disappointed with his own suffering and his own circumstances that he was dealing with. See, John and the other uh, disciples uh, of Jesus and really a lot of other people who were looking for the Messiah, they thought that the Messiah would come to overthrow Rome, to take care of the oppressive situation that the Israelites were in, to set up Israel as this uh, political kingdom on earth and make all things right for the Israelites. But that's the way that man would take care of the situation. That's not the way that Jesus came to take care of the situation. It's not the way that he came to set people free. Instead, Jesus suffered and died to gain his victory and in turn, our victory for those who trust in him. This is not what they were expecting. This is not what John was expecting. And see, those unrealized expectations led to a disappointment that then led to doubt. It, caused John to ask the question, even though he's seen all these amazing things. John was the one who leapt in his mother's womb when Mary showed up. It's not as though John doesn't know who Jesus is. It's not as though John needs a track record of Jesus's uh, uh, Messiah type things that he's done. Instead, his situation, his circumstances, and his unmet expectations led him to disappointment, which then in turn led to doubt. And the same is true for you and I. When our expectations are aligned, with truth rather than our imaginations or our circumstances will be less likely to fall on our disappointments. So uh, let me give you an example. If I have an unrealistic expectation of God or an unhealthy expectation of God, when I pray and my answer comes not in accordance with my expectation, I'm liable to begin to doubt whether God is real, whether he's good, whether he has my best interest at heart, whether he's whether he cares at all about what I'm about. But see, if I'm aligned with truth rather than, uh, rather than this type of prayer, my will be done, which is another way to say my expectations come. If, if I pray that way, then, then I'm liable to be disappointed by God's answers. However, if I pray the way that Jesus teaches us to pray, which is thy will be done, your will be done, your kingdom come, that aligns me with truth. I'm going to be much less liable to fall into disappointment about what God is doing in my life. And this is why reading the Bible, I mean, we talk about it every week. It seems like almost a trope now, uh, a cliche, but it's the truth. If we read the Bible, if we spend time in prayer, 
uh, if we do a, a consistent spiritual inventory about kind of where I am in, in relation to God and, and how I'm relating to him, how well I'm praying lately, how often I'm reading my Bible, if I'm invested in my disciple groups, if I'm serving in a ministry in our church or serving others outside of the church, if I'm being led by the Holy Spirit, partnering with them each day, those are all essential to my spiritual health. Those are actions that put me in line with God, that put me in line with truth. They raise my spiritual IQ and raise my spiritual sensitivity so that I can understand, hear, and see what God is trying to do in my life. But if I try to bring God down to do my expectations and to do my will, I'm liable to fall into trouble. Because when he doesn't answer what I want rather than what he wants, I'll, I'll be disappointed. Because God doesn't always give me what I want. Rather, he's out to give me what I need. See, and Jesus' conclusion to John's answer really rings out to me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble on me, is maybe another way to say it. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah, but you're still going to be in prison, John. Now, John, do you still believe do you still trust me? Do you still love me? And the call to follow Jesus is exactly like this. It's not about certainty. It's about trust. Do you trust Jesus even when you don't understand all of his answers? Do you still trust Jesus even when your circumstances are heavy or difficult? What Jesus is telling us this morning is that the blessed ones are those who trust in Jesus. They have a peaceful, a calm, quiet assurance about who he is, about the bedrock reality of his kingdom working and operating in and through us and throughout the world. Blessed are you this morning if you know Jesus as the Lord of your life. I don't know if you've thought about your relationship with Jesus that way before. I think we take it for granted because many of us grew up in the church and we just kind of always have known about Jesus or whatever. At least that's my baggage. I've always known about Jesus, always sung songs to him. I've always known about him. I don't know that I've taken the time to think about what Jesus is saying here, that I am blessed if I know him. Simply knowing him is a blessing. Simply being a part of his kingdom sets me in the blessed camp, the happy camp. Now, if you don't identify as a Christian this morning, I, I want you to consider this. Why haven't you put your trust in Jesus? Is it because you don't have every answer uh, to every question? Is it because you're waiting for all of your doubts to be dispensed with before you come to know him, before you come to put your trust and faith in him? Well, I'll tell you this. Doubts will occasionally still happen when you're a Christian. Now, we're not saying every day at every moment, but doubts do occur. Christianity is not about having certainty. It's about having trust. It's about being in a relationship with Jesus. And this is what Jesus has done for us to prove his love, to prove that he is for us, is that he took your sins in himself when he went to the cross and he forgives all of them. I like to ask my youth all the time, how many of your sins were future sins when Jesus went to the cross? Well, all of them, because he went to the cross 2,000 years ago, and even still he went to the cross knowing that you and I would sin. But he's okay with that because he loves you that much. 
He would take our sins. He would forgive them. And not only does he do that, he grants us new life where he indwells us with the Holy Spirit. He gives us the ability to walk with him, to partner with him, to be changed by him, to grow, to become more like him. And all we have to do is trust in him. And this is really important. Trust removes the need to have every answer. Trust removes the need to have 100% certainty on everything. And you understand this in your own relationships. When your friend tells you a story, you don't check the video, the videotape footage of their day to see if their story was true. No, you just trust them. You just believe what they say because you love them and your relationship is built on love and respect for one another. You don't have to check everything that they say. That's silliness. Nobody could even operate. We spend all our days doing videotape footage checks of everyone. That would be, that'd be insane. Nobody operates this way. And certainly our relationship with Jesus is the same thing. Sure, we should study. We should strive to know the answers from scripture. We should learn more because in the learning, we, we get to know who God is more. And actually, when we do that, we I think we find that we're going to love him more and we're going to trust him more because he'll find, uh, or rather we'll find, that he is trustworthy and that he is faithful to us. To know him is to trust him. To love him is to put our faith and trust in him. Trust removes the doubt, or doesn't remove the doubt, but it removes the need to have every single answer all of the time. Now, Jesus turns his attention from the disciples that he's just sent to go give this answer to John, and he begins to talk to them. We're going to be in verse 7 here. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Now, again, if the Bible is all about me, what is Jesus even talking about right now? This doesn't make any sense at all. Well, again, we got to put him in his first century context. This is an allusion to King Herod, who had coins that were minted with an, a specific image on it. It was an image of a, a Galilean reed. And, and again, coins, money, represent power. They represent the control of the, govern, the government that's in power at that time. And Jesus is posing a question to are listening. Did you come out to see a reed? Shaken by the wind? Verse 8. Uh, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Jesus tells the crowd, essentially, haven't you seen enough politicians and powerful people who promise a better life and a better world but never deliver? Aren't you in the same place? Why did you come out here in the first place? You didn't come to see a king because none of that is working. You came out to see this guy who's wearing camel skins and eating bugs off the ground. That's who you came out to see because you were compelled by what he was talking about. You wanted to see and experience what he was saying. He's talking about a new kingdom. It's here. He's talking about God's kingdom, the thing that you've been waiting for. And the kingdom operates differently, completely differently than the ones that you've witnessed and the ones that you've experienced. Jesus goes on to talk about the difference. In verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. See, our culture operates very similar to this, very similar to the way that King Herod and really all of human history uh, forever has looked. There is uh, a, a, this, this idea, this notion that it's my kingdom. And so because it's mine, I have to take control of it. That's the way that the earthly kingdoms operate. That's the way that our, our cultures operate. It's my kingdom. It's about my control. And I think this is what we get wrong. The opposite of faith 
is not doubt, it's control. Control leaves no room for faith. Control, control is about knowing all the answers and being the smartest one in the room, being able to, 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 to certainly know each thing, whereas faith is about trust and quiet and calm and assurance. Now, we know this intuitively. Control is an illusion. But see, it's, it's a dangerous illusion. It's, illusion. it's an illusion that can erode our faith. And because we live in a secular society now, there's this constant conflict between control and faith. As I was studying over the past couple of weeks, uh, I, I came across this really interesting quote that describes our secular society. It's one in which people don't necessarily not have beliefs. I think that people have beliefs wherever you go. It's not like everybody you meet is an atheist and has no beliefs about anything. I think wherever you go, most people believe something. But we all kind of recognize or intuitively understand that our neighbors who are good people, who do good things, they don't believe like you and I. They don't have the same uh, starting point and they don't have the same ending point, certainly. They believe differently than we believe. And what that puts us in, what that feels like every day is it, it makes us feel like there's this pressure uh, upon what we believe. And this is the quote that I, I, I wanted to share with you. James K. Smith says it this way, we're going to feel tugged and pulled and pressured by alternative rival stories of who we are and what we're here for. We are all Thomas now. Now, Pastor talked about who Thomas is, who, the great story about doubting Thomas, who in the face of evidence from his friends didn't believe that Jesus really was resurrected. And this is the idea that because we live in a secular society where there's a constant pull back and forth about what we believe and whether or not this story is true or whether or not Jesus is really real. And here's this article that you could read from this really smart atheist who says something different than what you believe. We all become Thomas now. That's because there's a battle that's raging for our minds. And just because um, Jesus is talking about violence here and force here, yes, maybe in a first century context, that has to do with literal force, but there's also a, a soft force. There's also a quieter force that, in, that can occur. Uh, really smart articles by atheists, um, op-eds that we read on the internet or in newspapers. There's a soft force that Satan is trying to use to produce disappointment and questions in our mind, which ultimately lead to doubt. And his whole idea is to move you towards unbelief. Now, despite the evidence of God moving in our lives and in the, the lives of others, there is pressure such that we're all Thomas now. Okay, so what do I do with that? How do I handle that? How do I cultivate faith and trust in Jesus? How do I develop a deeper relationship with him in a culture that goes completely opposite to what I am about? Well, first, you need to doubt your doubts. Uh, okay, I know that's a little kind of, you know, it's a pithy saying, whatever, but hopefully it sticks in your mind this week. We're supposed to doubt our, our doubts. When we imagine, let me, let me personalize it. When I imagine that I'm a perfectly rational being, that I'm like a computer who receives information robotically and then spits out a cold calculated answer, what I, what I do there um, is I ignore the reality that my life is very complex and that my life, which is very complex, fits in with other really complex lives and other really complex systems and things that are happening 
all around me all the time. If I just assume that I am this robotic thing that makes perfectly rational decisions all the time, then I miss that I am easily prone to bias, that I'm easily prone to moments where I'm emotional and irrational. Um, I was telling the, the group this morning that I had dreams last night um, that like had me wake up and have like moments, like literal moments. I laugh at, at it now, but in the moment that I woke up, I was completely irrational. I had a dream where I wasn't preaching with a shirt on uh, last night. And that led me to like some anxiety. I was like, you know what I'm saying? That, that was really heavy for a moment when I woke up until I realized I was just a dream. But even still, if I, if I think that I'm this perfectly rational person, then I miss the fact that I can be led astray by marketing. Oh my goodness. There's a reason Facebook listens to you because they know how to target ads towards you and they know the time of day to target them towards you so that you'll be more prone to buy the thing that they're throwing towards you. I wonder what thing they're going to be throwing towards you today. In fact, I've seen posts all over this week even of people who post about they were listening to us. Here's this ad. Anyways, you guys know what I'm talking about. All of those things are, are, are coalescing, moving together to push me towards emotional decisions rather than rational decisions. And this is true of us. If I believe that I am completely in control, I'm perfectly rational all the time, then when I have a doubt, it must be true. It has to be because I'm perfectly rational. I'm a computer. Nothing ever phases me and I make perfectly wonderful, rational, perfect decisions all the time. But if that's the case, then when I have a doubt, it has to be true. But that's not at all what's happening. And what the Bible tells us is that Satan is constantly at war for our minds, trying to change us and move us away from Jesus into unbelief. And Paul gives us a great, um, uh, a great example, a great idea of how we can fight against the doubts that we experience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, he says this, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive. That's a really important phrase, to take every thought captive. For what reason? Just so we're smart people? No, to obey Christ. Paul is telling these European believers and us today that doubts will subside the more that we study scripture and submit our thoughts to the truth of scripture. That looks like checking my inner dialogue, checking my emotions, checking my thought patterns, um, checking all of those things against the truth that I find in scripture, the truth of, of what I know God is like. Is this what God's character is really like? If it's not, then we need to check those thoughts and realign ourselves with God. We have to doubt our doubts. Next is to grow our faith. Um, this is this is about constantly striving to raise, again, what we've talked about, this spiritual IQ, our spiritual sensitivity through prayer, through time with our fellow disciples, through memorization of scripture, by serving one another, serving our church. All of these will strengthen your faith because it's actually aligning you with God and his truth. And when you're aligned with truth, your expectations begin to be set at a healthy level. They begin to be set at a correct spot. And when I'm aligned with truth rather than my feelings or my emotions, I am moving more towards the heart of God. I'm moving more towards his will rather than mine. In essence, when I do these things, listen, we can talk about them all day, but until I begin to do them, I'm missing out on the exercise where I actually begin to grow in a closer relationship with, with God. 
If I, if I don't do these things, then I'm not actually learning to rely on him more. But that's the whole point is we want to rely on him more. We want to trust him more. And what happens as I do these things is I create this filtration system um, for my own thoughts. So when I think something or when a new idea comes in, it's not just carte blanche and hits my mind and I believe it completely. Instead, I have a filtration system where I think about it in view of what the Bible says. We would call that a biblical worldview. I think about ideas. I think about my doubts, whatever they may be, in line with that filtration system that's set on the truth of God, rather than my circumstances or feelings or whatever they may be. This is why we talk about discipleship so much around here. You, you need to invest in discipleship because you're going to learn how to uh, grow those spiritual muscles um, and get really trained in what that looks like. Listen, it's one thing to know that you should be doing these things. It's a totally different thing to be doing them and then look back as you're doing them and see how you're doing them. Because once you know how you're doing them, you can tell the next person how I did this and how this might work for you. This is why discipleship is so important for us. Because it not only terminates with me in my own growth, but rather it goes out to others to help them grow their faith, to help them also fight their disappointments and their doubts that might arise. This is really important for us as well. We have to stay healthy. You are a whole person. You're an embodied spirit, a body and a spirit, a spiritual and material being. We just can't say it enough around here. You're a whole person. Doubt is as much linked to our health our physical, our emotional health, as it is to our spiritual and intellectual health. Okay, so here's the question. Are you healthy? Are you getting enough sleep? I was reading a quote by uh, D.A. Carson, who's a theologian and pastor, and he was saying you have a spiritual obligation to get sleep when you're tired. Because when you're tired, about it. where was John when he had doubts? He was in prison. He had overwhelming circumstances. He was tired. He was hungry. It's not like he was getting four square meals a day like we see in our prison systems today. Instead, people had to bring him food because no one was going to feed him. He's exhausted. He's, I mean, at the, his anxiety is frayed. He's at the end of his rope. And that's the moment when he had doubts about who Jesus was. Are you getting enough sleep? Are you healthy? Now, I've realized in my own life that when I have moments or seasons of doubt, it's because my relationships are in turmoil. Um, I, I doubt not because I read, you know, this really great article, uh, uh, you know, a smart atheist wrote about the, you know, that wants me to doubt the existence of God or whatever, wants to prove uh, the existence of God. That I, I don't necessarily struggle with those moments. When I doubt, it's because my relationships are in turmoil. Um, my personality craves harmony. Uh, we, we just did this. Is it, is it, uh, the class Jeremy that we did is you said this, I heard that. Is it something like that? Okay. So in this class, we learned, uh, what kind of personality type we are in order to understand and look for moments that might lead us away from the truth of God might lead us away from great relationships that we could cultivate with one another. My personality type, I found out craves harmony. I have to have it. And when I don't have it, I don't just question myself or that person. It's not, it doesn't just terminate here. I question everything. And knowing that about myself sets me up against the doubts that might come 
when I inevitably will have some relational turmoil because I'm not perfect and nobody else is. And so things are going to happen in my life that will lead me towards doubt if I'm not looking for those moments and if I'm not already fixed with the truth about myself. Different personality types expend relational energy differently. If you're an extrovert, like my daughter, Avalyn, uh, you, you gain energy from people. There's people everywhere. I love them all. And you want to go flit and flight all over the place and know everybody. But if you're like my other daughter, who's more of an introvert, leans more that way, she wants to hold on to mom. She doesn't want to expend any energy when there's a large group of people like last night at my uh, sister's graduation party. She was at my wife's side the whole time because, because it's overwhelming for her. It's, it, it produces anxiety for her to be around that amount of people because she's more of an introvert. Now, it doesn't mean that she doesn't have fun and doesn't like to talk to people and love her family, but it means that it's overwhelming because, again, different personality types expend and recharge differently. So does your schedule have any margin or time for your recharge? Or are you all expense and no rest? Or are you in the opposite end? You're all rest and no expense. Both extremes are really dangerous and harmful for our emotional health and and if we aren't paying attention to our physical and our emotional, our spiritual and our intellectual health, then we're going to be led towards doubts. We have to be healthy. You have a spiritual obligation to take care of yourself. Lastly, we need to define success, success in God's kingdom for sure, as trust, not certainty. Just because you haven't been in a rocket ship up to space uh, and seen the roundness of earth. It is round, by the way. I just want you to, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page this morning. It is not flat. There's not turtles underneath it or whatever they say. Um, it, it is round. Uh, but just because you haven't seen that with your own eyes doesn't mean it's not true. Just because you haven't seen the bottom of the ocean doesn't mean it's not there. Uh, we intuitively understand this, that you don't need 100% certainty to know that something is true. You don't, you don't have to have that to know that something is true because faith isn't just a spiritual person thing. It's not just for those spiritual people who talk about, you know, spirits and gods and whatever else. Faith is what all people experience. Faith isn't just belief. It's the way that we live our lives. None of us checked I didn't, when I walked up here and sat down, I didn't check the structural integrity of the legs of this chair. Maybe I should have, I, or, or you get what I'm trying to say, how ridiculous that is. I didn't look at the brakes on my truck before I drove up here this morning to make sure that they would actually work. Now, maybe I should have, cause it's a 1986, but either way, I, I didn't, I just trusted that they would work and they did. Thank goodness. And that's what success in God's kingdom looks like. It looks like committing to the thing that I know will work. I don't need a hundred percent certainty to, to be successful in God's kingdom. All I need to do is to commit and to trust in him. So at some point, this is what it comes down to. We all have to make a decision to commit. We have to commit to God. We have to commit to trusting in Jesus because the end goal of our relationship with Jesus isn't a life free of doubt. That's impossible. And it's silly to think that that's what we would achieve if we follow Jesus. Rather, it's a life full of trust. It's a life full of trust because doubts will happen, but we can overcome them. And as we overcome them, we'll experience growth and further trust 
in Jesus. We'll find him to be sweeter. We'll find him to be more merciful and more gracious than we've ever experienced him to be before. When doubts arise, does he care? Do I matter? Where are you? Are you listening to me? His answer to us is just like his answer to John. Blessed is the one who does not stumble because of me. Blessed is the one who's not offended because of me. What Jesus is calling us towards is not certainty or simple yes and no answers. Life is too complex for that. Instead, Jesus is calling us to trust in his goodness, to trust in his love, to trust in his track record of provision and protection, to trust in the truth that he is good and he is for your best interest, even more than you are, actually. So remember that even when you doubt God, he doesn't doubt you. Even when you waver, he is more than faithful for both of you. <laughs> so blessed is the one who trusts. Happy is the one who experiences a relationship with Jesus. Blessed is the one that even when we don't get what we expect, we still receive what we need from Jesus. Blessed is the one who trusts in him this morning. If you haven't placed your faith and trust in Jesus as your personal savior, as the Lord of your life, I would love to give you an opportunity, whether you're watching live right now or you're going to watch later on. Please, that number that we posted up on the screen earlier, uh, please text that and let us know if you are making any decisions about wanting to join our Cornerstone family. I, I know you haven't even seen our church yet and you still think we're wonderful. Wait until you see our church family. We're awesome. Uh, uh, we would love for you to join our church. We would love for you to reach out to us if you make a decision to place your trust in Jesus Christ. Listen, I'm going to pray and lead you in that prayer this morning if you'd like to make that decision. Text and let us know if you did that. We'd love to be in contact with you. We'd love to send you a Bible. We'd love to uh, follow up with you on discipleship and how we can train and help grow you to have further levels of trust and love for Jesus. The way that we pray um, isn't about the words. You don't rub a magic lamp with the words that I'm about to say and make God do something for you. He doesn't work that way. Instead, what you believe in your heart about Jesus being Lord of your life is what matters. What you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, what the scripture tells us, is what matters. So you have to believe that Jesus is Lord of your life. And not just of your life, but all these people who would come alongside you and develop you and help you grow to be more like Jesus every single day. Jesus is Lord of your life, Lord of this world. And when we submit to him and when we let him be the authority of our life, when we, when we commit our trust to him, then he enters into our heart. He enters into our lives and he begins to change us. If you want to pray that prayer with me, I'm going to just, uh, I'm just going to say these words and you can kind of follow along and make the words your own. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you that you see me, that you know me and that you love me. Even when I have not seen you or loved you or gone after you, even when I've not obeyed you perfectly, even when I have sinned and gone against your commands. I thank you that Jesus went to the cross and that he forgave my sins, that he forgave all of my sins. And now instead of me being a sinner, one who receives judgment from God, rather I can become one who is blessed, one who is not stumble over Jesus or is offended by him, but rather one who trusts in him and places my life in his hands. This morning, Jesus, I'm asking you to be Lord 
of my life. I declare that you are my Lord and that you have the say-so in my life. You are the authority for me. I commit to follow you, to be changed by you, and to fall more in love with you each day. I am so thankful that you see me, love me, and know me, and I am so thankful that you would care for me enough to forgive my sins and change me to become more like you. Help me each day to walk this new spiritual journey with you as I commit to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed something along those lines, please let us know. If you're in a watch party, you can go ahead and uh, take the video off and you can go on to uh, your discussion guide questions this morning. If you're an individual or you're just a family watching together this morning, not in a watch party, let's go ahead and pray one more time as we finish our services together. All right, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much that that you uh, you, you don't doubt us. Um, in fact, you love us so much that you'd want to partner with us, that you care about us this way, that you don't just robotically make us do things or make decisions for us. Rather, you have given us free agency to love you and to trust you on our own. You've given us evidence of your love and your protection and your provision and your grace and your mercy in our own lives. And I pray this morning that even if we're facing doubts or facing difficult situations, we would recall the moments where you've been faithful to us. We'd recall the moments where when we trusted you, we grew further than we've ever grown and we've become more like you ever, uh, more than we've ever become before. I pray that doubt would not be um, a, a roadblock, but rather just a moment that we move beyond as we grow to become more like you. Help us this morning to doubt our doubts, to grow in our faith. Help us to uh, help us to be healthy in our minds and in our bodies. Help us to realize we're a whole person. Help us to move towards you as we don't search for certainty in everything, but rather we search for trust and we live our lives in that calm, quiet assurance of who you are. Bless us this week. Help us to trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.